Hi guys, welcome to another episode of the Sensible Hippie Podcast, and I'm your host, the Sensible Hippie. Today we are diving into a conversation that's bound to challenge the conventional and ignite the imagination. Our special guest today is Troy McLaughlin, the author of Saturn Death Cult. Troy is renowned for his exploration of Saturn's ancient past and its deep influences on human civilization. In today's episode, we'll explore the idea of Saturn as a once free-floating brown dwarf star and Earth as its satellite. We'll delve into the electric universe theory, the Saturn death cult, and the intertwining of ancient mythology with modern science. This is not just a journey through space and time, but an invitation to look at the universe from a perspective you might never have considered before. So sit back and open your mind and let's embark on this cosmic journey with Troy McLaughlin. How did you come to begin to write this book? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, to make a, you know, proverbial long story uh, short, when I was at university, I was uh, studying Egyptology um, as a course, and I butted heads with the... um, with the, uh, the the main guy there uh, over a book that I found in the library, and it was called Ages and Chaos by a fellow called Emmanuel Valakovsky. I had no idea who Valakovsky was, but he was writing some pretty wild stuff regarding the chronology of ancient uh, Egypt. So I went and asked this, because uh, uh, I saw that the book had actually been sent to my professor as a... Um, as a, as a gift, I thought, yeah, he's read the book, he's donated it to the library, you know, I'll go and ask him about it. And the response I got was like, you know, quite literally, I was holding a cross up to a vampire. It just simply, you know, he he had this reaction. Put it mildly, he said, I don't do Valakovsky. And I said, but I don't do Valakovsky. And, and he just simply was totally uninterested in discussing Valakovsky's work, which prompted me to all the more want to read it if he'd been if he'd been civil about it i would have probably said oh, okay fine i'll carry on with whatever and valakovsky would have never crossed my mind but of course valakovsky is most famous known for his uh, worlds in collision book um in terms of interplanetary disasters and i read that after i read his his um histor- alternative historical chronology um volumes and uh, ever since then uh, I've uh, maintained an interest in that alternative field of uh, research into ancient planet interplanetary you know cataclysms, and uh, uh, when the electric universe model started to pick up steam in the uh, late nineties and all through the two thousands, I came, became pretty much convinced once I got hold of the works of Eduardo Cardona that uh, this was the it, it seemed to me the the most logical. Uh, the most logical solution for marrying up what is written in ancient mythology with what could have happened in the, in the uh, natural sciences, uh, as far as the natural sciences go. And, uh, of course, the electric universe is a very fringe uh, concept as far as modern academia is concerned, uh, mainstream science and so on. But uh, I've, uh, you know, through the writings of Eduardo Cardona, who was a disciple of Valakovsky, who fell out with Valakovsky, but wrote a lot of books that I've um, that I've read, uh, you know, over the years. Uh, I've, I've just come to the conclusion that uh, it's correct uh, in 
explaining what mythology is actually all about, what the madhouse of mythology actually means from a cosmological point of view. And then that naturally also, another area of interest I've always taken into is the corruption in the socio-political, religious and economic spheres of uh, human activity. And uh, <clears throat> the, the, the thing that I've done with my book is I've married that cosmological solution uh, called Saturn theory with mythology, but shown, try to show how mythology uh, has provided all of the triggering uh, symbols and uh, archetypes um, that are now used to manipulate vast swathes of the population, you know, to the benefit of a of an elite few. Uh, and you know, basically, it it comes down to uh, this um, this this basic idea that it all starts, uh, you know, with this lost go mythical golden age ruled over by an ancient god called Saturn. Other peoples have different names, but the same archetype. And how it might all end with attempts by certain elites at contriving um, the violent birth of a new golden age, but one that is man-made um, and uh, designed to be ruled by people who identify with with whatever variation of Saturn, um, you, you know, comes out of their mythology, uh, and and hence the Saturn Death Cult, which is a bit of a misnomer because it's about people who are trying to cheat death by creating a technological form of immortality. Um, they're obsessed with, with the legality of being the archetypal creator god Saturn's legal heirs, if you know what I mean. They're, they, they wish to, uh, they wish to um, I'm going to put it, envelop themselves in, in, in self-appointed legality uh, in terms of uh, where they make claim to legal ownership over the planet but uh yeah so it was it was a book uh, it was a long uh you know process in in starting with Velikovsky, various other books and totally un, un um uh unconnected ideas like the uh the way the central banking system acts as a debt enslavement control mechanism um but uh yeah so you know when you're when you're saying mythology is the actual recorded accounts by the ancients of of ancient interplanetary cataclysms, you obviously have to provide a cosmology to justify that. Uh, you're basically saying, "I'm going to tell you, I'm going to try and convince you of a of an entirely new uh, history for the solar system as we know it and how it was formed." And uh, that's the result of. Uh, that my book uh, Saturn Death Cult is a result of sort of those two eyes be ideas being brought together. Yeah, that's it's an incredible book. Um, and in, in your book, you say that Saturn was once a free floating brown dwarf star with yeah. Earth as one of its satellites. Mm -hmm. Could you elaborate on this concept and, and the evidence that led you to that conclusion? Okay, so really the, the first thing to understand about that is that in the electric universe, and particularly in a subset called Saturn theory, and within the people who follow what's called Saturn theory, uh, there are many variations of it. I follow the Cardona sort of version of it and so on, develop some of my own ideas and such. But effectively, we look at the solar system, unlike the modern scientific idea of the solar system created by an accretion of uh, by an accretion disk that forms planets um, around a uh, mainstream 
um, a main sequence um, star like the sun. Our idea is that our solar system is actually the result of many objects being captured by the sun. Okay, so uh, this idea is that we have more or less a salad bowl uh, solar system, uh, a salad bowl uh, solar system in which uh, most of the planets bear no resemblance to each other, despite mainstream science telling us that these um, planets all came from the same accretion disk. But they're, they're vastly different. Tilts make up, um, some have intrinsic uh, um, uh, magnetospheres, some have induced magnetospheres. Uh, they're vastly different in their atmospheric qualities. Uh, there, there are so many differences between the planets that it, it seems to uh, totally belie the idea that they all accreted under the same conditions, uh, you know, over time, different axial alignments, all this sort of thing. So Saturn theory basically believes, or I say it, it postulates, hypothesizes that the planets Saturn, Mars, and Earth uh, existed outside of the solar system as a free-floating brown dwarf system, um, wherein the brown dwarf star that would become the planet Saturn was drifting northwards in space and catching up with the sun uh, over a period of time. But during that period of time, life was developed, however you want, you know, created on Earth, depending whatever your um, uh, your view of how life is, is, is brought on. But it was it was existing in this relationship where Earth, that Earth had with Saturn, along with Mars, while drifting through space, and in such a condition that the electrical pop properties of a brown dwarf star create a very dense, opaque, uh, what's called plasma bubble um, around the object, which means people on the inside of that plasma bubble, think of it like a cocoon, uh, cannot see out into the greater cosmos, and people who might observe a brown dwarf star coming through space can't really detect brown dwarf stars. They look almost invisible. And I'll just put in there as a data point that it's believed that maybe up to 7,500 of these objects exist between us and the next nearest main sequence star. So the idea that there is a huge population of these very hard to detect um, objects floating out in space, um, you know, that, that we call brown dwarf stars, uh, gives a lot of uh, up to the idea that one of them can easily uh, float into the proximity of the of, of the sun's influence, its pull, gravity, and also electrical properties, and ultimately be captured by the sun. And that's what we hypothesize, uh, that the brown dwarf uh, star that became Saturn, along with at least two of terrestrial um, satellites, did exactly that. It drifted into the influence of the sun, that influence having its border where um, the heliosphere ends, which is a, this giant bubble ar around the um, the sun. They People put that down to just, you know, uh, what, what you would call um, solar wind and, and, and these sorts of ideas. In the electric universe, we propose that all objects in space develop electrical fields, and that these electrical fields are, of course, either negative or positive to other electric fields. And when you get a positive, a powerful electric field that is more, more positive than, a, a, it, than another positive electric field, it makes the second electric field negative in relation to that uh, first, that more powerful uh, positive electric field. And so 
when those two electric fields that are vast, huge in space, when they connect in some way, there's a short circuiting process that goes on and the smaller electric field becomes um, uh, equalized in terms of its electrical properties with the larger one and things change dramatically for that body uh, when that happens. This is what we propose happened to Saturn with Earth in its toe. And this is the crazy thing that most people cannot accept. Most people will find absolutely you know, beyond the pale scientifically. Humans were in existence at that time when that event took place, when the capture of Saturn took place along with Earth and with Mars. And to make things even more complicated, we propose that the result of that capture, the electrical overloading of the um, of the Saturn brown dwarf star, caused that brown dwarf star to, to, to nova, which produced the light that mythology talks about. The most famous example, you know, God said, let there be light. Um, and uh, But the, the fissioning of that um, brown dwarf star core ejected a piece of its core out and that became the planet venus and uh for a long period of time after that initial contact between the sun's electrical field and saturn's electrical field uh the uh, saturn venus mars and earth existed in axial alignment for a period of time that became known as the golden age on earth uh, due to the absolute transformation of uh, the earth's climate it's um uh, the the way day and light existed and and so on and and subsequently uh introduced the beginnings of what we call civilization as a result of that change wow that, that was a lot there um so i i believe i read the the timeline you had mentioned it was about possibly six thousand years ago when this um happened um, uh, twelve thousand years ago and okay. then 6,000 years ago when a doomsday event knocked Saturn out mm -hmm. from the skies uh, of, uh, of Earth. So chronologically speaking, 12,000 years ago, a catastrophic novering of a brown dwarf star bathed the Earth in light, created an entirely new world that existed for about 6,000 years. But then a cataclysmic doomsday scenario, a deluge, wiped out that that time at that at that time and severed the contact between saturn and earth and literally rearranged all those planets into the configuration that we have today where things did not settle down into what we see today in the skies until around about 500 bc um there was still there was still rogue elements you can call them sort of planets still on a very erratic path uh, comet-like um, settling down into the new into the new system so you know we're proposing that humans went through an extremely frightening uh, um, you know series of cataclysms that didn't settle down until about two two and a half thousand years ago and uh, now we um, we live in a relatively and thankfully very stable period uh, that you know, the ancient peoples would have or could only have dreamed of living in wow so did you you said that there was a, a possible deluge back then too just like noah's day it's not the noah deluge of the bible it's the deluge as of uh, is associated with the sinking of atlantis these kinds of uh, concepts okay. so chronologically speaking mm -hmm. when saturn novas twelve thousand years ago it loses its opaque plasmic bubble 
um, to because it, this gets equalized by the sun's electric field. That exposes life on planet Earth, not only to Saturn now becoming a sun, uh, you know, in, in, in its sky, which had only been like a pale disk uh, prior to that glowing disk, a glowing disk that could support life on Earth, plant life, that sort of thing. We call it the purple dawn of creation because the light of a brown dwarf star sends off a blue-red spectrum, which is wonderful for plant growth. But life on the planet then would have just simply been a, a monoclimate. It just would have been you know, one type of warmth, uh, maybe a little bit of warmth up in the, um, up in the Arctic area, which was... Uh, um, which was facing directly to um, to the brown dwarf Saturn. But when that plasma uh, sheath, that plasma bubble, uh, basically vaporized and Saturn went into Nova, it put out a tremendous amount of light. But people on Earth suddenly were exposed to the greater cosmos, the, uh, the stars, the um, different types of, of planets. This was a radical, radical change. Um, and that lasted for about... I believe about 6,000 years, uh, you know, nobody, I, I don't, I'm at odds with other Saturn theorists who believe they can, you know, sort of date these things down to the minute. But, uh, uh, you know, the idea is six, 4,000 years. Then what happens is that the whole system, as it gets dragged over a period of time, totally, you know, into, into the full uh, power of the sun's uh, um, electrical field, uh, it also runs into a tremendous amount of water particles, ice particles, that were spewed out by Saturn in its original nova. Many of those ice particles would form the rings of Saturn, but a lot of those ice particles escaped out into and, and ended up in orbit around the sun. And the Saturnian system, as it was being captured, collided with that uh, cloud of ice particles, which produced a, de a deluge that lasted weeks uh, on the Earth. And uh, that, is, that is the doomsday deluge event that is related to, you know, we hear stories about Atlantis, other stories about deluges and so on. The Noah biblical event is something different, which is a bit of a distraction to, um, you know, the story as it is. That, 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 in my opinion, relates to a latter deluge that has to do with Jupiter's uh, influence on Saturn and 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 what happened um you know quite at least another thousand years later um after the original deluge um event and that that first deluge event that became the doomsday event that became the doomsday archetype that scarred humanity and so on it resulted in Saturn losing its position uh as a sun as earth's original sun which the alchemists have often said was Earth's best sun uh, in terms of life. And it, it, it created a, um, a, a severance with what was the golden age, this paradise, you know, this paradise lost sort of idea. And Earth entered into a, a dreadful state of uh, having to deal with a new concept of seasons, um, uh, you know, scarcity, food scarcity, that sort of thing. And, in the human psyche, that scar, that doomsday event that nearly wiped out humanity, uh, would instill in us a fear of 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 doomsday catastrophism uh, of any kind and such. It would also instill in us a yearning for a return 
back to the golden age when Saturn was our sun uh, and and uh, the earth enjoyed you know year-round bountiful harvests that sort of thing uh, it so yeah it's what happens in, in in mythology of course is that the the destruction of of Saturn as uh, the chief of the gods the uh, the killing of of, of Kronos by the sun Zeus um, by Saturn by his son Jupiter and so on like that um this changed many people's concept of what the archetypal creator god was from a ben ben beneficial beneficent god uh into a capricious god that got up on the bit you know wrong side of the bed one day and decided to that's how i'm doing i'm destroying you know um the world and uh uh so it instilled in us a fear where a righteous god turned into a rampaging um murderous god uh and uh and this is this is what begins to influence mythology and religions down through the ages when the earth changed into this uh world of scarcity because of seasonal um changes and so on like that so yeah it's uh you know that's that that doomsday event is what changed everything in terms of the human psyche uh and is now and we're still affected by uh right up to this day yeah it sounds very much like the bible um how it talks how, how what you're talking um the well, I'll just, yeah i'll just uh, I, I'll, I'll say that for people who want to make comparisons to the bible the doomsday event that i'm describing is the fall in the garden of eden where the characters adam and eve are uh, ejected from the garden of eden and they can never return they can never return to that wonderful time so the saturnian golden age in the bible is the period of the garden of eden all right and uh that golden age is also the time of atlantis all right uh, and so on and what it's marked by is a world that is uh in harmony with its god uh it's, a, it's a, with its creator god and the first thing that happens to humans at this time is because of the introduction of light they are able to calculate time and time is a measure so that we have weights and measures as the foundation of our uh, civilization and time is a measure that um allows humans for the first time in existence to be able to plan things you know i'll meet you next tuesday i'll meet you in 10 minutes that kind of thing before they had no ability to calculate the passage of time and thereby had to stick together in clusters of groups and stay with an earshot uh, let alone you know line of sight if they were to ever find each other again uh, and and you know plan for things and be able to communicate that all changed with the coming of light and that's why chronos is associated with being the god of time um saturn chronos being the god of time um and it marked a period when humans uh how can i put this they the, those weights and measures time being the first one led to other weights and measures and it marked a period of exploration of their new world their, the this newly opened environment that they could explore and so you had the great migrations around and the the earth the the people who took to the seas the people who who you know uh, walked from place one place to another and so on and this was all enabled because weights and measures were now um, available to them to plan their operations uh 
when Saturn fell from its position uh, in the north, uh, that changed and measurements changed, everything changed. And I guess we'll get into exactly why that changed, what that meant for humanity as a whole. But you were going to ask me a uh, question. <laughs> no, I was going to mention, so this cocoon mm. around, was it the sun and Saturn? Mm -hmm. This cocoon? The sun was outside of the cocoon, invisible. Okay. Um, to the... Um, around Saturn. Yeah, so the okay. heliosphere, which stretches out way past, you know, the now demoted planet Pluto and so on like that, think of that as the edge of the sun's um, electric bubble that, that uh, you know, uh, surrounds it. When the electric bubble that surrounds the... Um, the brown dwarf star that was Saturn touches the other bubble, the, the bigger bubble, you get that electric equalizing effect and it becomes transparent almost instantaneously. And, uh, and then the sun becomes visible to people on Earth who, once they've got over the flaring of, of this thing that used to just hover uh, up in the sky, um, you know, into, into a bright sun, they would notice that there was a much brighter star uh, that rose in the east, it seemed, and then, you know, set in the west, that was getting bigger and bigger and bigger um, as time went on. So a lot of the mythologies will talk about the distant sun. Well, first they'll talk about the absent sun, then they'll talk about the distant sun, then they'll talk about, um, you know, the, the, the sun that rises in, uh, in the east and sets in the west and so on. And this is all... This is all in um, contrast to how they talk about Saturn, which has always been one of the big mysteries of the mythologists over time, the academics, is if, as mainstream science tells us, that the Earth is pretty much the same as it has been for the last at least three billion years, and certainly in the time that humans have been in, in existence, it's been basically the same. The sun always rises and sets, blah, 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 blah. They couldn't understand this emphasis on the planet Saturn, all right, as a as a, as a sun, as a as a god in the north uh, celestial realm. Now, what we're talking about is celestial north, or what's called true north, uh, where the pole star sits. You've seen those those um, uh, those videos of the stars circling in the sky with a camera faced on the pole star. Well, that's where Saturn was, all right. And I, I always read this. Uh, this is Eduardo Cardona put this best. Um, when, uh, when in explaining this, when he said, and I quote, the evidence of myth which points to Saturn having once occupied a position above Earth's north polar regions is voluminous. There is not a race on Earth that has not preserved at least one account which states as much. According to this evidence, Saturn occupied a central position in the north celestial regions. It rotated and it rotated widely, but other than that, it was immovable. And so what you have in mythology is this idea of a sun that shone during the day produced by the, the new sun, the solar sun, right? shone during the day and it also shone at night because it was static in that, in that place where it looked down on the northern hemisphere from above, uh, you know, above the northern point of, uh, of the planet. And, uh, you know, th this is the, 
when John J. O'Neill, an academic in the Victorian era, saw this stuff, he thought the ancients must have been mad to propose such a thing. Saturn is a pinprick of light on the outside of our solar system as we see it today. It's one of the five naked planets. But how could you ever confuse this with, um, with Saturn being a sun, especially up in the north celestial region? So they contrived to basically turn academia into accepting the idea that wherever you see the Saturnian arch archetype associated with this with this sun that shone in the north, they were actually referring to the sun we see today, which rises in the west and sets in the east, and so on. And so the whole of mythology around the world in academic circles, you have this constant misidentification of Saturn as being a solar disk sun god uh, that uh, uh, you know that people worshipped. When in Saturn theory, what we are proposing is once that cocoon, as you asked about before, disintegrated, evaporated, you know, um, became transparent. They were confronted with two suns, this giant one up in the north that they had known all this time, but suddenly now burst forth with light, bathed the earth in this brilliant golden glow. Uh, and so, and this other encroaching sun that was obviously having an effect um, because you find that a lot of the temples and a lot of the um, uh, a lot of the monuments, particularly stone circles, things like that, are oriented northwise, but they have a reference to this new sun turning up and so on. So when I was saying that it was an age of exploration, it was really an age of mapping out the world that humans now found themselves in and wondering, what is that thing? What are all these star, these spangly things now? You know, uh, they're in the sky. And what I should tell you is that, of course, the cocoon that existed before, the opaque cocoon, looked like an ocean. If you stared out into the Pacific at any point or whatever, this cocoon would blend with the ocean. It had the roiling effect of a choppy ocean because of all the electrical activity. Uh, you know, it's a sort of red, uh, purple-type glow that it had. And so this is what is meant when all these religions and so on, they talk about a darkened age where... where you know, for want of a better term, God hovered over the ocean. He hovered over the waters, as the Bible says, and uh, um, and then suddenly burst into light, and the ocean was gone, and you're confronted with, you know, the zodiac um, of stars, and so begins this this golden age of mapping out the new world that we're in. It's an exciting new world, um, and uh, it was a world that also codified so many weights and measures that became laws that governed when you met other groups of humans that you could all rely on. And this is where we come back to the idea that the archetypal, uh, the archetypal creator God is also a God of justice because he provided the means by which laws, weights and measures could be utilized uh, to govern relations between uh, various humans. And things went very well for quite a few thousand years. And then the deluge happened. And then after the deluge, uh, the people on Earth were stuck with this concept of scarcity, never, never before heard of, you know, before food was everywhere. Um, now suddenly, you know, people were fighting over access to food. And as the biblical account goes, as I said, this is equated with the ejection from the Garden of Eden. By the sweat of your brow will you make the Earth yield its fruits. 
that's the world that they had entered into after that deluge. Wow. So, so this cocoon almost sounds like a firmament of, of that's exactly that what the Bible. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. Yeah. So is that firmament gone now because of the deluge? Yes, yes. Uh, the, 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 the waters that the Spirit of God, hit, you know, um, hovered over and so on, the, the, the great celestial ocean, um, it literally in an instant, uh, because our electricity works that quickly, it literally in an instant um, was made transparent. And the most that you will see on Earth today that has any indication of what things look like are uh, the northern lights the uh the southern lights the um you know or aurora effects that we see when uh in the electric universe when we say the birkeland current that connects earth with the sun now um has you know an overload of electrons then you get this spectacular lighting system now imagine an entire world covered in that um where you see that everywhere from you know pole to pole uh from hemisphere to hemisphere uh except that in the days of saturn that would have been more purple oriented in color uh than the greens and the blues that we see today wow that must have been beautiful to see that so since it was our sun did it have heat oh like yes our sun okay yes. perfect heat yeah do we have a like a day and a night or was it all the no. same uniform um light except it would have been brighter in the um in the northern polar regions which is an interesting case because under that scenario because earth was an ex earth would have been in what was called phase lock like the moon is around the um um around the sun uh, sorry around the earth we see the same side of the moon pointing to us as it as it goes around us now that would have been earth's relationship to saturn but when saturn was electrically attracted by the sun it moved ahead of the earth and dragged the earth under uh it's um uh, you know uh, under itself as it moved with the polar region now being an axial alignment so you get um uh, basically a, like a, a string of beads between the, the planets and that's what lasted for a long time and what that created uh on earth was a a kind of a semi-paradise in the north polar regions uh which are now frigid and frozen uh but uh um up there uh, and we know that this is the case so even mainstream science is recognizing that the that the polar regions were virtually subtropical um as as recently as five thousand years ago they don't know why because they can't figure out how the sun would have got to it if it was the sun of the sun we have today but it's completely understandable if if you take this idea that saturn as the ancient mythologies claim was actually a sun glowing at that time and yes it put out it even even before it novid it put out a blue red spectrum of light that is wonderful for plants all right but what it meant was that we lived in a world that was uh hum and i'm talking about humanity in general at that time lived in a world that was a, a gloomy twilight uh with purple light as a dominant spectrum plants would have looked red uh you know uh, most things that we see as green today would have uh, been red and we know that um that the reason that plants have developed a green look is that what they're trying to do they they hate the yellow spectrum of the sun the green spectrum of the sun that we have today but they love its blue and green so they reflect away from themselves 
that particular spectrum in order to absorb only the blue and green. Under a Saturnian, under a, a brown dwarf scenario, uh, they don't have to do that. They can just luxuriate in a constant glow of um, of uh, this blue red spectrum. And, and that, when that when that cocoon bubble, that cocoon Saturn and its, and its um, satellites was in place, that light from Saturn, the core of Saturn, would bounce back off the um, the inside of that cocoon back onto the Earth. So while you had a a brighter part of the Earth that faced Saturn in the North Pole, the rest of the Earth experienced a warm subtropical environment of constant light. Uh, the downside of it being almost impossible to be able to calculate time. There was nothing to reference celestially uh, to um, to you know to facilitate that time, but it was a paradise you know the the the, uh, the flora had never had it better than under saturn and wasn't um i believe i read that the the gra I, guess, I guess the gravity was lighter so i mean which made sense for the dinosaurs to be able to be so large and, and walk around the earth in in today's gravity it's impossible that's right. Yeah, they'll they'll crush themselves under their own weight, like like whales do when they beach themselves. That's how whales die. Uh, they eventually, um, you know, suffocate themselves uh, by, by crushing their own lungs under their own weight. Uh, the dinosaurs would do the same in this environment. Um, you know, chops go out to um, uh, my former writing partner, a guy called Ted Holden. He was the guy who who um, looked at the whole concept of what he called the impossible dinosaurs. You know, how were they able to pump blood and the gravity they had from their bodies' hearts up to heads that were so far away, so on like that? How would they be able to walk? And, you know, people who first discovered these um, creatures, the skeletons, when they first discovered them, they assumed they must have been wading creatures that used water buoyancy and so on. But then we discovered footprints in what was obviously made in dry land so they obviously walked the earth and so it's just become accepted that uh because mainstream science believes that the speed of light and gravity are absolutes they're constants all right that uh so uh the earth's gravity is just simply a mechanism of its um of its uh volume of mass uh that uh and it can't change without adding or subtracting uh to that that mass what the electric universe model says is that gravity is actually as much a part of weight and mass but also is a part of the electrostatic um phenomenon that is taking place between celestial objects so depending on the level literal level of um electrical inputs that's going into the earth your gravity is going to change and this is why we've got these problems today where the french um uh kilo they've got this they've got this uh little weight that is the exact kilo that they that they created as a weight and they put it in a room and so on and you know over the last 50 years the thing has added has become something like 13 electrons more heavy now that can't happen all right in a in a, in the mainstream gravity only model and so on and what that tells an electric universe proponent is that the earth's electrical relationship to the sun fluctuates just a little bit and thereby creates imperceptible changes in gravity but when you have a massive 
electrical short-circuiting going on between two celestial bodies the size of Saturn and the Sun, then gravity changes can be massive. And the various extinction events that the fossil record gives us is probably more likely a record of the brown dwarf star's electro, electrical stat, uh, electrostatic um, properties changing through whatever encountered while floating through space, uh, where each um, extinction event is a dramatic change in the gravity on Earth. So at one stage, yeah, uh, the gravity had to be a third of what we experience today for some of these gigantic dinosaurs. And, you know, we see that gravity has become heavier and heavier and heavier um, through these extinction events if we take that as our as our uh, yardstick for, for how um, how gravity is measured. Well, so were, were humans taller? Yes, it's quite possible, yes. Uh, certainly more robust uh, <laughs> in terms of, you know, size and... Uh, uh, you know, sort of their shape and so on. Um, they uh, they may have even lived longer because of that. Um, so biblical stories about the great ages of patriarchs, things like that, and so on, which are also seen uh, in other mythologies, other peoples, and so on like that. And the, the talk of giants, these these kinds of um, individuals, and so on like that. It, long life may be a combination of actually living longer, but also how, how a year was calculated in relation to Saturn before the year became the 365-day process of orbiting uh, the sun. So there could be confusion in terms of that. But humans will live longer under a lower gravity because of the lack of strain on the spinal cortex, the, the, the spinal column, because we, we're a species that our heads are too big. Um, you know, we compared to other species and so on, we we have, uh, you know, if evolution may is true, then evolution made a mistake by giving us such a big brain and such a big head in relation to our body, because it it really does start to wear and tear on us after the age of 50 um, in terms of the weight that the head offers and, uh, you know, all the various problems that medically can come from that. So a lower gravity would have resulted uh, in at least a more comfortable life. Uh, and when you're comfortable, you probably did live longer. And this may be what's behind the biblical idea that the, the age of man, of a human being, was reduced to 120 years um, as a maximum. Uh, it may have been one of those gravitational changes um, that, uh, that took place, you know. Wow, that's incredible how this is all fitting in biblically. It's, it's quite incredible. Um, I think you mentioned also in your book that um, there is a Pacific bulge that marked where the Earth's um, North Pole might have been at one time. Originally was, yes, that's right. Yeah. That's incredible. I've never heard of yeah. this. Well, that's, uh, that's going back to the idea of Earth purely as a satellite of Saturn before any capture process is taking place. Um, you know, via the sun, being, you know, bringing Saturn into its orbit. And so, what? And, and this is my other book called The Purple Dawn of Creation, where I go more into the idea of what life on Earth might have been like during this time for humans when Earth was the satellite of, um, of, of, of a brown dwarf star that would become the planet Saturn at a later time. And what, um, uh, 
what what I postulate is is that the Earth was in what's called phase lock, which is like the Moon around the Earth. Uh, the Earth was like that around Saturn. So one part of the Earth always pointing at um, at Saturn. And as a result of that, you would expect that the in the same way that we have a bubble, a perceptible bubble um, that uh, um, is created by gravitational tides, things like that, uh, that you have on the Earth. And we postulate that under Saturn, when Earth was in axial alignment with Saturn, that uh, gravitational bubble was the um, the Arctic region, the Arctic uh, Sea, and so on. Uh, uh, you know what you call the Arctic Circle. But prior to that, because there is this um, this this bulge in you know it's just it, it's it's very close to Japan, uh, and there's a bulge in the South Atlantic that is if you stick a you know a rod straight through that bulge through the center of the Earth, it comes out on that bulge uh, in the South Atlantic. And uh, I and, and a few other people are, are postulating that this was the original gravitational pull of Saturn on Earth while it was in phase lock before it was then dragged underneath Saturn as it started to comet towards the sun um, and, 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 and ultimately change its entire sort of uh, cosmic life as a result. But yeah, that, oh. uh, those bulges <clears throat> um, are very much an indication of what life was like when Earth was a satellite of Saturn in its own right. Wow, is is it an actual bulge? Like you can? Yes, yeah, 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 most definitely. Yeah, it's a hell of an anomaly. Yeah, and wow. and um, it plays all sorts of havoc with the uh, um, you know with uh, navigational devices, things like that, and so on. Um, but you know, it, it's one of those unexplainable. Uh, ideas if if the earth has been in the current configuration of orbit that it enjoys around the sun now why this bulge and why are they opposite you know uh, why is there a perfect opposite bulge but in in um the electric universe uh, model this is explained by the existence of what is called birkeland currents so birkeland currents christian birkeland was a norwegian scientist who explained the auroral activity, the effect of um, the, uh, the, the aurora effects that we have on the northern uh, lights and, and also in the southern parts. So I'm from New Zealand originally, and uh, the um, you know you, you could occasionally see those southern lights, and so not as spectacular as the northern, but they were there. And what Christian Birkeland, um demonstrated. And this is so important because he wasn't a theoretical science. He's one of these experimental guys. Was that he put a steel ball into an experiment and ran electricity through it in, in a current and was able to create the exact same auroral effects on that steel ball by showing how current moved between you know a source into that ball out and uh, and back into the you know the source. So basically, a circuit of of electrical current. This was rejected by mainstream um, scientists simply for the fact that they could not conceive where the electrical current was generated from. And ever since mainstream science has rejected the idea of um, electrical current in the universe or in space, uh, simply because they do not believe that charge separation can take place in space. But the electric universe model says that where mainstream science 
has created the concept of black holes, dark matter, dark energy, and so on. That's all explained by a um, by a substance called, often called the fourth state of matter, called plasma, um, which is ninety five percent of the known universe, um, and so on. So you've seen those, you know, incredible um, uh, these incredible pictures of the universe that NASA puts out, you know, filamentary, electrical looking and so on. That's not how space looks to the naked eye. You don't see that. What's, what NASA is doing is, is it is assigning um, colors to various energy spectrums and then bringing that spectrum up so that you can visually see it. And so what you see is actually the filamentary nature of plasma in space. You can't see it with the naked eye unless it goes into arc mode or into glow mode. And when it's in what's called dark mode, it's there, and NASA can bring it out by by uh, assigning color properties to to you know to the power. But that's what we we that's what we claim in the electric universe is the actual governing force more so than gravity in holding the universe together. They've created black holes, uh, dark energy, dark matter, um, as a way of explaining why there isn't the 95% of matter in the universe needed by the normal gravitational-only equation models to hold the universe together. Um, we can only see, so it's, it's, it's down to less than 3% of the mass that is needed out there if gravity is the only force operating in space. It's missing uh, that 95%. So they've created this idea um, by literally as a result of exclusion. Uh, they've created this idea of uh, this, this force, black holes and dark matter and so on, to explain how the universe is held together by gravity. And the electric universe, universe says, no, it's actually all of that plasma which is 95% of the universe to start off with. And it's electrical conductivity that is holding everything together under electrical principles. Why, why do they try to, or why do they want to mislead us like this? Because I, I, can, I can only put it this way. You will never convince somebody is wrong about something, something if their wage packet is dependent on them being right and you being wrong. Okay, and the whole of academia and science is in exactly the same position as as Galileo faced um, the Catholic Church back in the uh, uh, pre Renaissance days at the beginning of the um, uh, Reformation, so on, uh, where he countered the idea of the Earth-centric model that everything revolves around Earth, and we are living in the day now where if you don't believe in Einstein's uh, relativity theory, um, and if you don't believe in the uniformitarian notion that everything has been the same for the last billion years um, without changing dramatically and so on, you don't get a job, you don't get paid. Uh, you have to you have to follow uh, the, uh, what do they call it, uh, chaos and it's Kuhn's chaos in the brickyard. You have to follow the paradigm that is currently working that generates money. And uh, so if you're told something that is a threat to your PhD, which is your qualification to a cushy academic, academic job, 
you are never going to accept that and you will fight that tooth and nail um and you know this 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 is is what's faced but you know the, the beauty about the way history works is that you know these kind of revolutions happen all the time gravity only mainstream science is stuck in the 19th century in terms of its understanding and well the electric universe may not have the full model at the moment there are enough people now coming out of who have retired and therefore no longer are threatened with losing their job who are coming into the electric universe way of thinking and uh, you know um seeing it for what it is now many of them are hardcore cosmologists physicists people like that and then there are the other lot who are the people who study mythology and so on like that but the combination of the two and so on you know as i said right at the beginning is what led me to write satin death cult um as a way of explaining you know how this was all formed the cosmology and the recorded history of that cosmology uh you know unite to produce these mythical archetypes that dominate us today right up to up to today did um did tesla tap into this electric earth's energy did he figure Absolutely. this out absolutely he didn't figure it out but he figured out how to tap into it and so the i don't know the apocryphal story that jp morgan was sticking money into his research in the hope of a new technology and so on like that and when tesla came up and said hey i've done something guess what everybody can have free energy you know <laughs> we just tap into this uh, whole thing and jp morgan repu reputedly said yeah well how do i meter that in other words how do i make money out of that and this is what led to uh um you know te tesla's demise in terms of his backing his financial backing but tesla most definitely tapped into what christian berkland had demonstrated was happening there was an electrical current and when scientists say that we don't know where you know where can that electric current come from well it's a galactical size electrical current that our sun is driven by and in turn our sun drives us uh with that electrical current and it's all done through these Birkeland currents and the, the transfer of or the you know the the, the the flow of electricity is through plasma which is you know literally think of it as Christmas Christmas tree lights and plasma are the wires that connect all those um Christmas tree lights that you see and that's actually how it kind of looks in, in space you know you see all these filamentary lines around and so on and they have these little wee bright lights that are stars uh, and so on so it looks like a bunch of christmas lights uh, you know uh, being strung out through the sky um where you can actually see the wires glowing as well but uh yeah uh, but yes definitely tesla tesla was tapping into that electrical current and you know without going into you know hardcore conspiracy sort of ideas and so on like that one of the reasons i believe the electrical grids around the western world in particular have been let to you know uh how can i say uh degrade there's been so little investment in those electrical grids is because i believe that one of the things we can look forward to into the future is the release of tesla-like technology that allows us free free source energy from this electrical current that flows through the earth in an abundance that is just almost unmeasurable and uh um and i think there are people that know this is the case but the great the greediness of people wanting to get rich um off 
of things uh, as opposed to releasing humanity to you know reach its full potential through free access to energy uh, and so on and clean energy it's so clean you know the electrical energy and so on you know but i i honestly feel in the next 10 to 15 years that that technology is going to be made available um and uh and totally change the whole concept of how we distribute power in our economies as we see it today interesting um so w with tes with tesla wasn't um president trump's uncle john trump was the one who was commanded to confiscate this work that tesla did the papers you should bring that up because i only <laughs> found out two days ago what that, yeah i only found out two days ago that's not true that's a mis mistaken oh. identity it was a john trump who was okay. assigned the job of mm -hmm. um of uh, cataloging and assessing tesla's papers for the u.s government but it was not uh, no relation trump, the uncle of uh, donald trump and so on. i did believe that that was the case that's been going around the internet for a while but i i i can't remember how it came about but i thought i better get to the bottom of this i'm i think i have I, I think I've related that story to people in other interviews. And you, you might know, having read my book, I don't know, did I put that down in my book? I don't think I did. I didn't uh, get to know. No. No. For the, for the, you know, since Trump became a, um, an issue on the world stage, mm -hmm. uh, I believe that that is the case, that there was a connection there between uh, the Trump family and the Tesla papers. But it turns out it is not. It, it, it's, it's, it's just simply it's two men with the same name who lived roughly about the same time oh. yeah. um i also wanted to ask um so with mars and earth they rotated around saturn mm -hmm. um what happened to change that like wh what happened to make it i don't i don't know why did it change and is it going to happen again could it it could but um i'll get i'll get to that because the electric universe model is is a fantastic model for calming down people's fears of being hit by an asteroid or a comet or things like that okay because there are things that happen in the electric universe model where the power of electricity actually acts as a shield for direct you know the bigger the body the less likely it's going to actually impact uh on our earth we get hit by smaller rocks and there is no doubt that you know something as big as five miles could you know wipe out manhattan or something like that uh, if it hit the earth we certainly had an incident like that in tunguska in the uh siberian forests um at the beginning of the 20th century where there was a you know some sort of a comet reaction that wiped out some people said it was a ufo but for me what's evidence there is that there was um it was basically a static explosion electrical explosion that takes place when when, when something gets overloaded by the electrical field of another one you, you get that and I'll, I'll come to that but to explain the relationship of mars earth saturn and its different configurations how it went through during that purple dawn of creation when saturn is a free-floating brown dwarf with its opaque uh plasma bubble acting like a cocoon you know holding all that heat in uh and i'll just 
say that the late great in my opinion Walt Thornhill from the Electric Universe has always said if we are in, really interested in finding life um, beyond Earth out in space go looking use infrared telescopes to go looking inside brown dwarf stars they're the perfect cocoon for for the creation of life uh, for the fostering of life uh, rather than it's this idea of trying to find a terrestrial planets in the habitable zone of a main sequence star and they could be so close they could be really close they could be you know less than a light year away from us uh, or even closer um and so on but that was his idea of of how life is sustained so uh, inside a brown dwarfs um plasma bubble cocoon cocooning the the core um star the core brown dwarf star and whatever satellites it has terrestrial mars and earth would have been two of those terrestrial they would have been eff effectively moons of um of, of this brown dwarf star now they would have been in this phase lock thing like 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 the moon going around the earth and you know they uh it was probably very similar think of think of the planet jupiter which also was probably a brown dwarf star in this time mm. its magnetosphere if it became opaque um which is really what this cocoon is in saturn i'm talking mm -hmm. about it's the magnetosphere if it enlarged and became opaque uh in the skies as we see it today the four terrestrial moons that jupiter has all right io uh ganymede callisto uh and um uh, europa would all be inside that magnetosphere that cocoon and they would all be rotating around um around jupiter and and, and so on. this is what we're proposing was going on with earth and mars with saturn when saturn was in its brown dwarf uh, phase now as saturn is drifting and when i say drifting of course we think so laterally it's you know cross like this but actually what i'm talking about is a planet that's drifting northwards it's been pulled along the arm by electrical forces into the center of the galaxy and that spiral arm moving down towards what is the center of the galaxy they call a black hole but we dismiss that as a thing but the point is that you have this spiral arm that's north that's electrically north um you know as you're moving towards that and so on so the sun is moving in that direction virtually everything in this spiral arm is moving in that direction and somehow the brown dwarf saturn moved fast enough to catch up to the sun and their plasma bubbles touched as we discussed before but before that happened earth and and um and mars were two terrestrial moons that basically rotated uh inside a, uh, around the brown dwarf set uh called saturn um in phase lock and so okay now when that planetary system that was uh saturn as a brown dwarf set electrically senses the more powerful attractive force of um of, of the sun's um own electrical field and heliosphere it starts to accelerate and when the acceleration takes place the satellites that are in equatorial orbit around that body will start to be dragged until they form what is a string of pearls as they're approaching you go and talk you go and suggest this idea to any mainstream physicist he'll laugh you out of court and so on because they say that doesn't 
happen. There's no, but it has happened. They just do not. They have a, they have an uncanny way of not addressing the things that don't fit into their models. So we saw the comet Schumacher-Levy break up on its approach to Jupiter. So think of Schumacher-Levy, the comet, as Saturn and Jupiter as the sun. And what you saw was that the comet broke up into 22 separate pieces. And then inexplicably, it, it formed, those 22 pieces formed into what they called the string of pearls, where they came into axial alignment and proceeded to then, you know, form an orbit around um, Jupiter until they literally crashed one after the other, like a train into, um, in, uh, into Jupiter. But the, the inexplicable part of it is that they have never, ever been able to give us a, a, satisfy, a satisfying physics model based on gravity as to why those objects formed into their axial alignment. So what we propose in this form of Saturn theory is that is exactly what Saturn and its satellites did when it started to get dragged into the sun and it formed this uh, axial alignment. Now, most people say there's nothing like it. You can't find it in the universe. That's not true. There are ubiquitous examples of axially aligned um, celestial objects. They're called Harbick arrow objects. And these, some people call them like stick through a donut. You get a celestial disk and there's, this, there's these polar jets that come out, you know, North Pole, South Pole, and so on. And they, 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 they call them jets, but those are Birkeland currents. And within those Birkeland currents, you get these, what they call beads. And it's, it's, it's my particular, a lot, you know, literally like a string of beads down, um, uh, down through line. It's my contention that Birkeland currents are planet manufacturing um, devices, you know, uh, celestial objects, where either gas giants or terrestrial planets are being created inside those um, little pearls along the jets that these objects have. Now, this is right out on the edge of even electric universe thinking, you know, we're talking here. But nobody can tell me that the idea of actually aligned objects is an impossibility. It has actually been observed. Um, it's um, you know, been seen to happen uh, within our lifetimes. Um, and, uh, you know, so, so the possibility that, that Saturn, then Mars, then Earth became a, became a string of beads that was dragged into orbit, into uh, the sun's orbit, um is 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 basically what we are proposing uh, based on these ideas oh, that's incredible um so once upon a time could we see saturn really close like maybe the moon a, a, a low full moon with its ring oh no much bigger than that and much more spectacular um you know it was a sun in its own right and when the rings formed after the initial flare-up and Saturn fissioned and it burned for a while. It ejected a part of its core that would later, according to our theory, become the planet Venus, which would settle uh, under Saturn's South Pole in between Saturn and Mars. And from an Earth perspective, we would look up into a sky and see a Birkeland current connecting the North Pole of the Earth 
with Saturn, like a column of light, because it would be in glow mode. It would fluctuate from glow mode to arc mode to dark mode. It would, you know, all kinds of different fluctuations, which is really what's behind a lot of mythologies talk about the Axis Monday, the, 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 the navel of the earth, the, the tree of life, the ladder to heaven, Jacob's ladder, all this sort of stuff, right? This is the Birkeland current connecting that series of planets in a straight line south of um, um, of Saturn to Earth's north. But when you're looking up, you're looking into a bright, a very, how can I put it, you, a, a glowing face circled by rings um, that have formed around it. This is in, during the Golden Age. And you're also seeing a piece of, of, the, of Saturn's core uh, dropping into alignment between uh, Saturn and Mars, but flaring electrically to create eight-pointed stars to the, the human eyes, is um, you know how how it would how it would see. And in front of that um, gloriously you know beautiful light, even greater light, but smaller than Saturn itself, which would become Venus, you have Mars, a terrestrial planet, like almost you know like the pupil. In your iris um uh that uh that, that you know that humans can see it would have looked like a giant eyeball looking down on the earth uh, and this is how it has actually come down to us the eye of god the eye of providence this sort of thing this is the this is what's behind that um symbol that is derived from that mythological alignment that was known as the abode of the gods the city of the gods in the heavens uh, and so on like that it shone like an eye that looked out over onto the world and judged now as part of that process um had there ever been life on mars which is possible um i i, I don't discount it but it would have been absolutely obliterated by the electrical activity um that venus caused uh, and so and this is why mars is known as as the warrior the scarred face uh, uh, marinus uh, valley um you know canyon they got that makes the grand canyon look like a you know like a small you know ravine or something you know along those lines it's enormous i mean mars is incredible it has the biggest mountain in this in the solar system and it has the deepest and biggest canyon in the solar system and its northern hemisphere it's like it's been machined i think it's five miles um lower than the southern hemisphere like its entire northern hemisphere has you know had a piece machined off it and this is all probable uh given that it effectively shielded the earth from the worst electrical effects the worst electrical short circuiting that saturn and 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 venus throughout at that time um, but in the end everything was held in that birkeland uh current in an axial alignment for a long period of time long enough to give us the visual imagery that has come down to us in mythology of this of god the, the creator god looking down on the earth like a giant eyeball that sees all um this is where that mythology sort of manifests from that so yeah we have it today the us dollar you know with its all-seeing eye above a pyramid the pyramid is your Birkeland current connection in fact that's what pyramids were um you know a lot of people do not realize that the uh great the great pyramid of Giza is the most perfectly northerly aligned building on earth more so than the 
then the observatory at Greenwich in London that sets the meridian um, for um, um, longitude, uh, you know, in the Earth, the the uh, in today's world, uh, the, the the pyramid of Giza uh, is perfectly aligned uh, with celestial north, and uh, of course, everybody's convinced the Egyptians worshipped the sun, the solar disk, uh, as it was, but. What this shows is that they had more, like every other culture, everybody's obsessed with this northern part that modern people can't understand, modern academics can't understand because they believe the world has always been as it is. It's Saturn is a pinprick of light out on the solar system. But the the Giza complex with the, the Sphinx facing um, out to the east, I believe sets the dating of the Sphinx for um, the beginning of the Golden Age. Uh, when, in terms of the, the, the you know the, the, the grand zodiac, uh, it was it, it, it started at the beginning of um, what was it? It started at the beginning of Leo um, after ending ending Virgo. It could be the other way around. You'll have to I'd have to check that out. But the you know the um, the Virgin's head with the um, with the lion's body is how some people interpret that statue. And, you know, I mean, completely so, because uh, even female pharaohs in the Egyptian thing had the beard, which was symbolic of the Birkeland current connecting the face mm -hmm. of Saturn. You know, with all this, you, you'll see the, in, in, in my book, I've done sort of did. Um, diagrams of that kind of uh, concept. But so the Giza complex um, is primarily um, oriented to celestial north, um, while at the same time telling us that the sun was first i this is what i believe was first calculated and sighted at about the time when in the grand cosmic thirty-six thousand year uh, procession of the equinoxes uh, we were transforming from either leo into virgo or from virgo into leo i can't quite remember uh, which which way it goes um uh, it's just escaping me at the moment but one of those one of those two ideas and of course, I also believe that the pyramid was set up as a way of creating a monument that um, codified weights and measures um, for the age, so that everybody had a reference and attempt to an attempt to get back into the, the the greatness of the golden age when all those weights and measures worked uh, for a, for a better society. I think that's what the pyramid was originally uh, created for, not as a tomb, but as a as a way of allowing people, if they came into dispute, okay, we'll settle. We'll go to the pyramid and see who's got the right measurements, who's got the right weights. That'll that'll tell us. I think an, an interesting aside on the Great Pyramid is that it's at the geographical center of uh, the land masses of the world, and it has been perfectly aligned with the north, with celestial north, um, over the last four thousand years. And supposedly we live in a world where the um, the continents are drifting. You would expect some kind of change, but nothing has happened. It is still exactly aligned. And continental drift advocates, this is a big, you know, this is this is again one of those things they they they, they don't want to talk about that. You know, they got their other evidence and all that sort of stuff. But if continental drift was actually a proven um, fact then the pyramid should have shifted in terms of its alignment. Uh, and, uh, and that's just not happened. Did the ancient people make the pyramid 
to during when um i guess saturn was in view yes or did oh. yes most definitely um uh certainly the um certainly the um um uh, the sphinx was set up at that time and there would have been variations of the pyramid built upon and so on but it was also a way of preserving a remnant of when saturn was there you see the greatest catastrophe that the human species ever underwent, according to mythology, was not the let there be light moment, all right, which launched the golden age. Yes, that was actually a very dangerous time. There would have been all kinds of problems that humans would have had to um, deal with at that time, you know, from earthquakes to, to whatever. But it was it was the deluge that brought the end to the um um to the reign of saturn now when that deluge happened uh saturn didn't immediately fall and move off out to um the outer edge of the solar system it became a sick man uh that's how the mythologies talk about it it became crippled uh you know it goes so far as to say um without being crude or anything like this but this is just what mythology uh saturn had his genitals uh cut off by his own son um, Zeus or Jupiter as it was and so he lost his manhood so to speak his ability and he faded and that's when Venus and Mars deserted him they went on their own paths and so on like that this was going on um, at a time when people in my opinion were constructing the Giza plateau in an effort to preserve the greatness of the golden age and but when when humans um no longer saw the skies in that configuration and it started to you know be a bit different for, for quite a few centuries the most important thing that um that was practiced in any kingdom was the observe observation of the um the skies uh kings needed to know when comets were going to approach closely what you know what was venus and mars doing we need to know because you know as it said empires rise and fall according to the comets and and, and so on this is why uh, many cultures still have this great fear of cometary si comet sightings and, and so on like that because of what the planets Venus and Mars were doing at this time. But again, there was this yearning. We've got to get back to that wonderful golden age. And uh, we need to make monuments that people can trust because human nature being what it is, people started to create false weights and measures within weights and measures systems that would benefit minorities um at the expense of the larger majority of whatever tribe group of people they were at and so the initial job of the priesthoods uh period that i call the silver age of man um the initial job of the priesthoods was to codify what was lost uh, after the demise of the garden of eden after the demise of the golden age of atlantis and so on and give people something that they could cling on to that would ensure that civilization would continue and progress but the history of things from that time especially with the advent of um uh the you know the warrior kings uh and so on that would uh, and, and also the priest kings just before them is that it there are people who sort of got the idea yeah i can live in a paradise like the golden age of saturn if everybody else is doing the work 
okay, and feeding me and giving me uh, the, the the proceeds of their product. And and this is where you get this terrible phase that we've been under for the last five thousand years. Uh, you know, as a, as a human species, where we have segments in our societies who seek to live a golden age lifestyle through enslaving those um, around them into doing all the work so that they can live that lifestyle and uh and you know this is where i end up making the connection to debt-based financing because you can only employ a certain amount of soldiers you know to beat up anybody who doesn't want to give tax taxes to whoever claims to be in control you need a mechanism that people will obey because they feel that they're in debt and must pay their debts um, and and the way you do that is you convince the population that it is the will of the gods that this group of people sit at the top and receive all the productivity of the vast majority of people um, below them and that has to be the case because they've got the symbols which trigger those archetypes. Aha, they've got the symbols of Ra, they've got the symbols of Saturn, of Cronus, they have certainly you know, the, 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 the symbols of, um, of all the other various gods, uh, Yi in, in, in China and so on like that. And so therefore, they have the authority because if we don't obey them, who knows, uh, this god may visit us with yet another doomsday event. So they're terrorized uh, into believing these people talk for the gods Therefore, to keep the God happy so that we're not hit by another doomsday, we better do what they tell us. Um, and that is so at odds with the, uh, the original concept of what the creator God was, which was meant to be a God of righteousness, of just laws, equal justice for all, as opposed to this capricious God who now demands um, sacrifice, uh, payment, in order to not kill you to not uh, wipe out your civilization and since that silver age going into the bronze age and into the age that we have today our society has degenerated into one where the important thing is to have influence in the world all right that's why we live in a gift giving um culture it's not because we're all happy about giving gifts some of us are and so on like that we like to help people out with that but a lot of people in the higher echelons gift gifts to receive influence from the person at the top and that goes all the way up to the godhead that they believe exists if i can give that god a gift he will favor me even if i am even if i am committing an injustice on other people and so on right and 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 that's why you know, particularly in which i study in the western civilization that's why you have the rise of masonic orders and things like that it's all about cultivating influence on a hierarchical level um, so as to satisfy a capricious god who might decide to wipe out the whole of civilization in in one doomsday event but sort of go but i'll let you live because i like you with the gifts that you gave me is this very similar to the breakaway civilization that you talk about and depopulization and i i, I heard you talk about the missing budgets and and our mm -hmm. governments things like that is, is this yeah, the same sure. well that's the result um, the breakaway civilization um, that uh, is Richard Dolan's uh, concept, this idea 
that the massive budget overspending things like that we see all the time and you know get told yeah it's happening but you know whatever gets done about it it's it's going into it's going into supporting what he calls a breakaway civilization and what i postulate is that there are two ways to look at a breakaway civilization if you're planning a doomsday event so as to kind of hurry up the process of entering into a new golden age um where you e where people in the know emerge as the dominant culture on the planet you know literally emerge as a as a new age gods um, to you know to rule the planet in the way they see fit because they've wiped out most of the population there's two ways to surviving that you go underground or you go into space and so on all right and if you have technologies if you have stuff that has been developed on tesla's uh concepts and so on and are far more advanced and this is why i believe not all of them because uh, i i have no problem with the concept of alien species visiting this planet that they exist and so on but i would say a lot of um a, a lot of ufo sightings unidentified objects and so on are probably highly advanced technology that we're not allowed to know of uh, that there's been testing abductions that kind of stuff and i think they've been preparing for a cleansing of the earth that they can survive either underground or in space uh as a way of bringing the world into a new golden age um this is a crucial factor uh in in what i'm trying to you know explain to people in the book that you have people out there who actually believe the idea that they are the children of saturn or, or moloch or, or baal or whatever variation of saturn that they are chosen because they've done all the things that they feel will influence the god into appointing them as heirs to his legacy and that they are subsequently going to remodel the world uh, in such ways to create a new golden age that they own through patents in science that they can uh scientific patents and so on there's completely uh remodeling of the original natural world uh and install themselves as heirs to saturn but with a world in their own image as opposed to the natural world that saturn is a, a believed to have originally created uh this is what i i uh i advocate i the mechanism to be able to have a breakaway civilization always goes back to central banking um the you know every religion says you don't you don't lend an interest this is an abomination um to do so you uh, it's the worst corruption in terms of weights and measures that you could ever have but this is how they financed and produced the kind of technology that they're that they're hiding and keeping for themselves but yeah i you know um Bill Gates's little um, bunker full of seeds and so on is all part of this plan um, that I believe in. You know, that's probably how he bought his way into that breakaway civilization that has, in one form or another, existed since, since the days of ancient Babylon. Wow, that's so cool. There's a lot to unpack in everything we talked about today. I would love yeah. to have you come back. Oh, um, and discuss yeah. more yeah about this breakaway civilization and, and the fine because we didn't even touch on the financial part of this at all no. and i really wanted to get I know. yeah, yeah. <laughs> i'd like it's to touch like, on you know, the, 
because I mean, you know, there you're talking the influence of the temples and the priesthoods, um, because all of that financial stuff, um, you know, it comes out of the distortion of 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 um, of the religions um, which were based on the original Saturnian concept. You know, so uh, it, uh, somebody once said, you know, religion is the belief in the Creator God. All right, that's religion. Everything else is theology. Right. And so whether it's the Christian version, the Buddhist version, whatever, you're religious if you have this idea of a creator God. And unfortunately, the modern uh, human response to that, that we've seen in today, it's a bit like, um, what's his name? Uh, the uh, the American wit. Um, basically, he said, you know, God created man in his own image and man, and man um, returned the compliment. We have created now god in what we consider our image um and all the authority that goes to that creator god now goes to that image that, that of of man as his own god and uh, that's the world that we're moving into uh that where 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 people are trying to create what i call this new golden age based on technology driven uh concepts of immortality and uh longevity and so on and they need to depopulate and they need to remodel the world to do that. And that's uh, thanks to the legacy of what the corruption of the original priesthood temples, that that two and a half thousand year, that uh, three and a half thousand year process has led us up to the mess that we find ourselves in today. But I'm very optimistic. Uh, I, I, I actually don't believe they'll achieve it. I think we're about to undergo a massive um awakening spiritual awakening if, if you want to you know uh, frame it that way uh but to me it's just simply humanity is going to discover the wisdom of living under just weights and measures laws that apply equally to everyone and not to you know not not first tier laws and second tier laws that we're seeing in the world today awesome Okay, well, I would love to have you come back. Thank Anytime. you so much. Oh, my goodness, yes. So as we wrap up our conversation, is there any final thoughts or key messages you'd like to share with us, and where can we find your work? Well, on, on the latter part of that, um, you know, I have the uh, website satindeathcult.com, which is really just a, a big advertisement for a book that can is sold on Amazon's, um, the evil Amazon's uh, Kindle um, platform. And so on. I only it's only available in an electric format, um, electronic format, I should say. Um, but uh, yeah, if you go to Satin Death Cult, one word, satindeathcult.com, uh, there are links to where you can buy the book if you have a Kindle uh, to read and so on. The, the website is actually designed to give people enough uh, enough of a look into what my um, views are, uh, where if you never buy the book, you'll still get pretty much the idea that I'm putting out there uh, for people who just can't afford to to do that but um and there's also a second book uh their complements are called the um uh, Purp uh the purple dawn of creation uh which is a speculative book on what life would have looked like before Saturn's captured by this by the, the solar system and you can buy uh, that's also advertised on the website and the first part of your question any final thoughts i yeah. really think it was just that 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 emphasis that i'm optimistic i'm not somebody i'm not selling we're all doomed 
um, I actually think that when people realize what a distortion these elites and these occult groups have in terms of the power they think they have in, in using these archetypes and symbols to extend their power, uh, you know, that evaporates uh, once enough people get knowledge as to how we've been manipulated by these symbols triggering our emotional responses and throwing our support behind people claiming to have authority on us. Um, you know, I, I, I think enough people, we've reached a point with the internet and so on that this kind of, kind of information is getting around in one form or another. They, that this power, this power of symbolism based on archetypes is disintegrating. It, it doesn't work for them anymore. We, we, we're seeing, you know, the proverbial man behind the curtain now as a, you know, as a whole. And so, I, you know, we've got troubles ahead, but I'm very optimistic that there is actually a golden age ahead when, especially if some of these Tesla technologies are released, which I believe that they are going to be within my lifetime. And I'm 60 nearly. So, you know, I'm pretty optimistic as to how soon this is going to happen. Um, that's so great. that's what I would like people to, to understand. Just, you know, don't get caught up in the occult doom side of some of these ideas. What I'm putting out there is that the knowledge shows how off base these people are in what they believe, what their occultic concepts are. And um, and it frees you from being, you know, worried that they actually have some kind of power. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Thank you again so much. I really appreciate your time today. You must be exhausted. <laughs> uh, I'm okay. No, I, I sort of I, I, I fluctuate like this, but yeah, I want to thank you um, because it's people like you that allow people like me to, you know, get out and say these kinds of things and so on. Uh, the effort of running a podcast is monumental. I think it's much more difficult than writing a book. So thank you very much for allowing me to come onto your show and, and discuss these things. As we reach the end of today's enlightening journey, I want to extend my heartfelt thank you to Troy McLaughlin for joining us and sharing his captivating insights. Troy, your exploration of the cosmos and ancient mythology has certainly given us a lot to ponder. And to you, my dear listeners, thank you for tuning into the Sensible Hippie Podcast. Your curiosity and support make these conversations possible and ever so rewarding. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and a review on your favorite podcast platform. Your feedback not only helps us to grow, but also allows more like-minded seekers to discover our community. Until the next time, keep your mind as expansive as the universe and as electrifying as Saturn's mysteries. Until the next time, stay curious and stay enlightened. Bye. Figure out which way to go Oh, 
there's stars in my eyes I can't see which way is right But oh, if there's one thing that I know It's only up from here Cause there's no one else that's me I'm unbreakable, unstoppable Me! <laughs>